This is Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories here about everything. Art, business, music, history, and as often as we can, about military history and about leadership. And on this day in history in 1802, Thomas Jefferson, president then, signed an act to formally establish a military academy at West Point in New York. And today we're joined by two Army officers currently teaching at West Point to learn more about this remarkable American institution. But before we are joined by Colonel Ty Sedgley and Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully, I wanted to dig into a very famous speech given in 1962 by General Douglas MacArthur, his last. And the first thing I want to do is play the very ending of this speech, read a couple of other passages, and then bring on our two guests for the hour. Let's take a listen. In the evening of my memory, always I come back to West Point. Always there echoes and re-echoes duty, honor, country. Today marks my final roll call with you. But I want you to know that when I cross the river, my last conscious thoughts will be of the core and the core and the core. I bid you farewell. And again, that was General Douglas MacArthur joining us for the hour to talk about West Point. Colonel Ty Sedgley leads West Point's history department, one of the largest at West Point. He earned a Ph.D. in history from the Ohio State University. And Lieutenant Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully is in charge of the American history program at West Point and holds a Ph.D. in American history from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And of course, in addition to their academic qualifications and fascinating day jobs, these guys have served our nation in peace and war in the Middle East, Europe, and beyond. They're sort of like your favorite professors from college, if those professors also practiced in the arts of deployment and warfare. Gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. You yeah, bet. Thanks for having me back, Lee. And thank you. And I want to start with you, uh, Colonel Sedgley. I wanted to read you a, a couple of excerpts. And by the way, folks, for those of you who didn't quite hear what we just played, it was MacArthur at the end of this beautiful speech. And he says this, In the evening of my memory, always I come back to West Point. Always there echoes and re-echoes. Duty, honor, country. Today marks my final roll call with you, but I want you to know that when I cross the river, my last conscious thoughts will be of the core, and the core, and the core. And so, Colonel Scully, uh, Colonel uh, Sedgley, talk about that uh, excerpt and what it means oh, to you. Oh, boy, I, I love that. I, you know, I, I, two things run through my mind. The first is uh, we have several people from the class of 65 that, that help us at West Point, um, and they were there at that speech, and I've talked to many of them about that mesmerizing time as when they were 18, 19-year-olds, and MacArthur was there as an 82-year-old and it's sort of an, in frail health, had come up from the city and gave that talk. The other thing is that the story behind it, which is, 
that the one of the people on the stage put a small cassette recorder and played it during that speech because the Army Signal Corps messed it up and that speech would have been lost forever if not for this one cadet who put a, put a cassette speech in there. But when I listen to the speech, I get goosebumps every time I hear it because it goes to our mission of educating, inspiring cadets for service to the nation, to create leaders of character, and nobody understood that better than MacArthur. So I, when I hear it, I get goosebumps as an American, uh, as someone who teaches at West Point, uh, and just as a human being. You bet. And Colonel Scully, let me read one part of this speech to you. Uh, MacArthur said this in the middle of the speech, and this is the duty, honor, country speech. Folks, go to Google and just read this to your kids. It's worth it. The soldier, above all other men, is required to practice the greatest act of religious training, sacrifice. In battle and in the face of danger and death, he discloses those divine attributes, attributes which his maker gave when he created man in his own image. No physical courage and no brute instinct can take the place of the divine help which alone can sustain him. However horrible the incidents of war may be, the soldier who is called upon to offer and to give his life for his country is the noblest development of mankind. Talk about that, Colonel Scully. Yeah, Lee, well, the the thought that comes to my mind every time I hear that is about um, the, the sacred duty of the officers coming out of West Point to be the best leaders of character that they can possibly be for their soldiers. Because in the end, um, it's not only going to be um, the officers who are going to be asked to make that sacrifice, but the soldiers who are following their leadership and executing their decisions on the battlefield that will be called um, to make that to make that final call. Um, and so every time I hear it, that's what I think about. I think about you know, what is it that we're doing here at West Point with these cadets when we're uh, teaching them to become officers? Um, and, and who are they going to be when they go out into the field leading those soldiers in combat? You bet. And what a, what a mission and what a calling that is. And when we come back, we're going to be joined for the hour to talk about all things West Point. Colonel Ty Sedgley and Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully. This is Our American Stories. We're talking about West Point for the hour. I grew up in northern New Jersey, and I was a lucky boy. My dad was an Air Force guy, but he would routinely take the whole family up to watch the cadets in action, to just meander around that part of the Hudson River Valley and the beauty of West Point. If you ever get a a time to travel up in that part of upstate New York, about an hour and a half north of New York City, take the family and visit one of the great institutions in America, West Point. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, more with the Colonels.
This is Our American Stories for the hour. West Point was established on this day in history in 1802, and so we're going to talk about West Point, this most important of American military institutions and military training institutions. I wanted to talk about one more portion of this MacArthur speech because I think it's so important. And here's what MacArthur told the young cadets there. And again, he's in his 80s now, and this is his farewell address. And this was when generals were giants, and not that they're not now, folks, but in World War II, oh my goodness, just imagine being a young man listening to MacArthur in this, in this small, what I think it was a dining hall. Here's what MacArthur said. This does not mean that you are warmongers. On the contrary, the soldier above all other people prays for peace, for he must suffer and bear the deepest wounds and scars of war. Colonel Sedgley, talk about that. Well, I think that is what, when we say that we wear the uniform uh, and serve, that's what we mean. We have the United States above our uh, left breast, and that means something incredible to MacArthur, and it means it to me, too. We are servants of the United States of America. We do the missions that the United States sends us on, and we are no better or worse than that. But having said that, we are uh, the, the greatest nation on earth, and the fact that we get to serve that is incredible. But what the nation asks of us is incredibly difficult. And we have to go to foreign lands uh, and be willing to both kill and be killed uh, to further the interests of the United States people. And our client, the United States of America and its people, demand the utmost of us. And, uh, and in, in the 240 years that the U.S. Army has been around, you know, I don't think we've ever let them down, and that's one thing that certainly I am uh, cognizant of every time I go into the classroom and every time I put on the uniform is we are being asked something very, very special, and it's, and it, and it, and it's a, a duty for us to, uh, uh, to serve this nation. We have to be prepared to do it at a moment's notice. Colonel Scully, let's start with you since you specialize in early American history. And we learned earlier that it was President Thomas Jefferson who signed an act to formally establish West Point. Talk to us a bit about the founding of West Point and why that location, why a military academy at all, and who were some of the key people that started this? Okay, Lee, that's great questions. So um, actually, West Point was... Um, was first became important to American history and to the nation in 1775 at the very beginning of the American Revolution. Um, George Washington and others, uh, both on the American and British side, recognized the strategic importance of the Hudson River um, connecting by water uh, through several different waterways, the city of New York on the Atlantic, <clears throat> and the cities of Quebec and Montreal in Canada. And, of course, the British had forces in Canada. The Americans had New York. Um, and so from the very beginning, there was, there was a contest to control the river. Uh, and by 1776, they realized that this outcrop, uh, this jut of a west point uh, into the river, was going to be the key to controlling it. And it became the center of a series of fortifications that were built by the Americans to maintain control of that waterway. Now, in 1777, they briefly lost control of it uh, when the British did sail up from New York City, um, but then regained control. And in, from 1778 to 1783, the American Army, the Continental Army, maintained uh, a whole fortification uh, system 
here at West Point that was charged with protecting a great chain um, that was put across the river to stop any British ships from traveling uh, north from New York City. Uh, and so from, from that period on, this West Point has, has remained garrisoned by uh, American soldiers. So it's the longest continuously manned garrison in the United States. Now, um, after the war, this was the site where the Continental Army was disbanded. This is the site where um, most of the enlisted soldiers were sent home. Many of the officers that were left traveled down to New York City to, to reoccupy the city when the British had left at the, at the end of the war. And, um, and then it remained a garrison for a very small American army until 1802. Now, in 1802, at this point, Thomas Jefferson is president, but many of the officers are actually uh, politically connected to the Federalist Party, which was Jefferson's opposition party at the time. Uh, at the same, you know, in, in addition to that, um, Jefferson was looking west for expansion of the country, uh, and he was very interested in um, engineering needs, scientific needs that might come about uh, should the United States continue to expand westward. Uh, and of course, you know, in 1803, he, he actually does um, purchase the, the Louisiana Purchase, um, greatly expanding the United States. So he's already thinking about this westward expansion, but he's also thinking about the fact that he has an army that has officers in it he's not sure he can trust. Um, and so he decides uh, that, that a military academy would actually be a good idea for the United States because it could do two things. Um, first and foremost, it would train uh, young American men in the art, in the sciences of engineering. Um, and that was, in fact, the, the core purpose of the academy at the time was to teach engineering to these Army officers. But the other thing that it did, and you can see it in how the appointment process was set up for the academy. Um, so to get appointed to the academy, you had to, you had to uh, show that you had the potential to be able to uh, succeed, but you also had to be appointed by your local congressman or senator. Um, and at this time, in 1802, the Republicans had won a very, very large victory in the election of 1800, uh, it looked like things were going to continue to go their way. And that would mean that this would serve, the academy could serve as the, the proper education for good Republican officers that would um, maintain their position as subservient to their civilian uh, masters, if you will. And I think Jefferson saw this as a way to, to do both. Right to to create um, a core of officers, young men who understood engineering and could solve the coming problems of westward expansion, while at the same time maintaining what he considered was the proper political outlook, and and in some cases, right that that in fact they voted <laughs> perhaps in the right way. Right, and Colonel Scully, let's let's remember that we didn't. We also might not have wanted to depend on foreign engineers and foreign artillerists. In other words, how do we wean ourselves from the dependency of outside export, experts as we decide our westward launch and expansion? Talk a bit about that, and then when we come back, 
we'll be joined by Colonel uh, Sedgley as well with uh, more questions. But ans- answer that if you could as well. Yeah, that's, that's, Lee, that's a, that's a great point. So, of course, West Point itself, the fortress itself, was built um, by engineers from Europe. Um, we, we didn't have many uh, professionally trained engineers in the colonies before the start of the revolution. And so when, uh, when the war began and we were looking for experts who could help us build fortifications, we first turned to a group of Frenchmen who came over, um, but uh, they proved a little difficult to work with, uh, some of the engineers that had come over from France. And so by 1778, we actually turned to a Polish engineer who had been trained in France, Thaddeus Kosciuszko. And Thaddeus Kosciuszko had actually made himself famous at the Battle of Saratoga. And Washington brought him to West Point uh, to actually take over the building of the, fort, of the fortress, uh, and which he did for a couple of years. And then, um, then he had to move on because Washington needed him in the field. And he again distinguished himself at the Battle of Yorktown. So at, at this point, that's that, right, the United States, this new country, doesn't really have the capability to produce engineers because at that time engineering was really taught within the um, realm of the military sciences and so this was Jefferson's way of rectifying that um, that shortfall. Well when we come back more with Colonel Ty Sedgley and with Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully and we're going to be talking for the hour about well all things West Point because on this day in history On March 16th, 1802, West Point, well, West Point was born. More after these messages. This is Our American Story. our American stories and for the hour we're talking about all things West Point and we're being joined by Colonel Ty Sedgley and also Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully and boy these guys know a lot about history, American history, military history and particularly well West Point history. Colonel Sedgley I wanted to ask you about the many articles and books and chapters you've written in which you talk about the history of West Point. How did the institution develop from where we just left off to now. And I want to talk particularly about leadership, too. But bring us up to speed on what's happened between those uh, between the early inception of West Point and the early idea about West Point. Uh, uh, Lee, I'd love to talk about this. So West Point, uh, from 1802 to about 1817, had a couple of people graduating a year. It really wasn't a, 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 a powerful place, and it wasn't a place that had a coherent idea about what it was going to be. And then uh, President Monroe uh, appointed uh, uh, Sylvanius Thayer to be the superintendent. Uh, the superintendent is like the college president. And before he became 
the president, he went to France for two years, traveled around, bought books, really became immersed in the way that they taught in France, and particularly at Saint-Cyr, the French Academy. And with that two years of, of really immersive experience in education, came back to West Point in 1817 and served for 16 years, our longest-serving superintendent, and created what we think of today as the modern academy. And he changed it in fundamental ways um, that Yale and Harvard and others weren't doing. He focused on practical education, and that meant education in mathematics particularly, and then soon on, on, a, on an engineering uh, not just military engineering, but civil engineering as well. And he no longer taught the classics, which is Latin and Greek, and that's what Yale and Harvard were focused on. Instead, Thayer said, no, what we should do is teach French and make this a very practical education, not training, but still education. And then he decided we need small classes to do that, in which he developed something called the, what we call today the Thayer Method, and we still do, and that is small classes immersed in a subject uh, with daily, uh, uh, that, that we give testing almost daily to make sure that they're doing the, the learning, and then we discuss the learning during, during the class period itself. So he, he instituted this way of uh, what they called then take boards, so the cadets would then go up to the boards, the chalkboards, and start writing math problems, very math heavy. And then he created a, a system of governance, which was a shared governance, that he had these fantastic, brilliant, uh, actually they weren't even called colonels, they were in the army in the rank of professor, and they stayed for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, in fact, one great story about that is uh, Alfred Thayer uh, Mahan, I'm sorry, Dennis Hart Mahan, who was a professor here for, for 41 years, and when he was finally forced to retire, he didn't know what he was going to do, uh, forced to retire after 41 years, and, and actually jumped off a paddle boat headed to the city, committing suicide into the paddle wheel. But these long-serving people were here, and it created a system where, where character and intellect were the most important things that you could get from a West Point education. And up through the Civil War, that was it. Character and education, through mathematics, and going to church became the way that you developed an Army officer. Fascinating. Yeah. No, go ahead and continue. I, I, I stopped you there, but keep on going. No, no, no. So, so yeah, so the, the idea was that we have these great officers, and that, that, that found its way. Does it work? Well, we found, boy, did it work. It worked in the Mexican-American War when Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, uh, all of the names that we would become associated with, um, uh, Sherman, Sheridan, became, we became associated with uh, in um, uh, the, the Civil War, first were used in the Mexican-American War. And and West Point became famous for, for how its graduates did, and help, particularly helping Winfield Scott in this amazing march from Veracruz uh, to Mexico City uh, when they were able to, to defeat the greatest army of the time in, the, in this hemisphere. In fact, uh, Wellington, the great British general, um, said that Scott, there's no way Scott would be able to make this journey. But it was West Point graduates that helped do this. So finally they're starting the, un- the understanding that what does it take to be an army officer? Does it take red-blooded American patriotism, or does it take a professional who has an education in the military? And so that, that is starting to change. And then we get to the Civil War, uh, where all of the, uh, the, the famous uh, generals on both sides, like 59 of the 60 generals on either side in the Civil War, uh, the major battles of the Civil War were West Point graduates. Now the understanding is, if not for West Point, there would be no United States of America because of Grant, Sherman, and Sheridan, uh, who, who really saved the Union and freed a race. 
Uh, so that, that idea of West Point as the focal point of the U.S. Army, uh, the home of the regulars, the home of the professionals, that's what that 19th century uh, West Point gave to us. It was a big century. And let's talk, Colonel Sedgley, about one other thing. Uh, since you're a senior officer who has commanded a battalion, can you briefly explain to the folks listening how the various groups of military personnel interact? What are the different roles of commissioned officers, non-coms, and enlisted men, and how do they all fit together? What's the master plan there? Why is it done the way it's done? Oh, that's a great point. So, we, so let's say if we have officers, which are lieutenants, captains, majors, lieutenant colonels, and colonels, uh, and then we have non-commissioned officers who are sergeants, and we have sergeants, staff sergeants, sergeant first class, master sergeant, sergeants major. They're each on their own trajectory for promotion. Uh, and then soldiers. A soldier is a private, uh, a corporal, a specialist. And those, those are the private soldiers. And so within those three, they each have very distinct and at times overlapping roles as well. So officers uh, are commissioned. They are in charge of the Army. They are commissioned by the United States Congress to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, uh, foreign and domestic. And so that oath of office we take to the Constitution is, and what we do is we do the planning and we are in charge. Of the of the organization, so anything that goes wrong, it, it's it's on it's incumbent. We're we're responsible for that to the American people, to the client, um, and so we we're, we because of our higher education level, we are planners, uh, and uh, and we have the moral responsibility within the units. The non commissioned officers, I think, it really have two maybe three major tasks. First, they're called the backbone of the United States Army. The reason that they're the backbone, other nations just don't have them. And, and they don't have the sense of professionalism that ours does, and the sense of education. In fact, there's lots of education that goes to become a sergeant now, and they're educated throughout their, uh, and trained throughout their, out their career. But they're really responsible, I think, for two things. They accomplish the mission, and they take care of soldiers. So the mission first, and then the soldier always. And they are, they are and they, the other thing they do, is they educate, they train officers. So as a second lieutenant, when I was a platoon leader, my sergeant, Sergeant First Class Brendan Allen, taught me to be a tank platoon leader. And so those, that's what they, they accomplish the mission, take care of soldiers. And soldiers, which are private specialists uh, in particular, uh, they, are, they are the ones that do the task. So in the Army, we arm the person, we arm the man. And everyone in the Army is there to support that 18 to 20-year-old infantryman who is actually fighting. It's an interesting difference between the Air Force, because the Air Force equips, they, they man the equipment. They have an F-16 fighting or an F-35, and they have everyone supporting that one officer. For us, we're supporting that enlisted soldier that's fighting. Yeah, it's actually the... And by the way, we had a great speech that featured General P, uh, Peter Pace. And Pace had talked about precisely what you were talking about, Colonel. He's deployed to Vietnam, and what do you know... He's not sure what to do about certain things, and he's taking leadership guidance from one of the sergeants who'd been in Nam for a very long time. And so in the end, those guys are real professionals, uh, those non-coms, and the interaction between the commissioned officers and the non-commissioned uh, men in the field, well, that's a, it's a very interesting space indeed. When we come back, more with both colonels, and we're talking about West Point for the hour here on Our American Stories, on this day in history, West Point was born in 1802. 
Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're talking to two fine West Point folks, Colonel Ty Sedgley, who leads West Point's history department, and Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully, who's in charge of the American History Program at West Point. And both guys hold PhDs, and both have served our country as, uh, as officers as well. And I wanted to talk a bit about leadership. Because the leadership tree that falls from West Point is remarkable. You were just rattling off a bunch of generals from the Civil War, Colonel Sedgley. And my goodness, World War I, World War II, we could go on and on. It's just remarkable. America wouldn't be America without West Point. I want to go to you first, Colonel Scully. What's in the water in West Point? Why was my dad bringing me there to watch what I was watching? I ended up being a captain of my high school basketball team in my sophomore year. And I think I learned a lot just by watching men lead other men at West Point. Talk about that, if you could. Absolutely. Well, I, you know, your father was bringing you here. My father was bringing me here as well. So my, my dad is a graduate class of 1970 from, from West Point. Um, and while I didn't go here, um, I grew up loving this place and um and really kind of revering it for all of the lessons that my father held so dear and then imparted into me in terms of of honor character integrity um the honor code here all of that was a part of of my upbringing and so when i came here to to teach um first off i i thought it was such an amazing privilege second i knew my father was going to be happy to have a free place to stay every time he wanted to That's come right. yep. um but uh but what what i learned when i came here about what we do is we are we are charged with the mission of educating training and inspiring cadets to become leaders of character for their nation um, and we do this in a variety of ways, but in the history department, we do this by um, helping the cadets investigate their past, the past of, the, of their nation, the past of other countries, in order to understand how to critically and creatively think through problems while learning empathy for people that are not like themselves uh, in a way to um, to create that kind of understanding of human nature, of human behavior, so that they can, uh, when they're leading soldiers in difficult situations in foreign lands, they can deal with the kinds of problems that they're going to come up with, not just in a practical way, but in a moral and ethical way uh, to represent their country as they should. And Colonel Sedgley, uh, to you, this, this leadership thing, and it's a, it's a big thing. I don't, I don't think there are many institutions left in America who actually teach it. You know, we did an hour on Major Dick Winters, and, and it was remarkable what the men said they learned from him. And what do you do? Do you, do you teach by example? Do you dig in and talk about how different men have led so folks can study other leadership styles? Talk about some of the mixes of education and mixes of approaches you take to get at this thing called leadership. I mean, you're getting these young men when they're 18 years old, and ultimately they're going to go out into the field at 22, and they're going to be in charge of grown men, it's an it's an incredible thing, and, and part of it is our mission. You know, and, and Sean mentioned that our mission is to educate, train, and inspire 
uh, our graduates to become leaders of character for the nation, to uphold the standards of duty, honor, country. It's an amazing aspirational mission statement. How in the world can we do that? I mean, it's almost impossible to take 18-year-olds to 22, have them four years, and have them ready to, uh, to lead soldiers in combat in the crucible of ground combat. And there is nothing harder than, than war. There's nothing more complex, chaotic, dangerous, and unpredictable than war. Uh, and, and humans are the most complex, dangerous, chaotic, and unpredictable animals on the planet. How could we ever prepare them for that? And I, but boy, do we get after it. And it's not just Sean and me in our history classes. It is our officers that are in charge of them in the daily life, in the barracks. It's each other, that, that, that uh, the seniors in charge of the, of the plebes trying to, to, to educate them and train them and inspire them. It's our uh, behavioral science department. It's our physics department. It's our athletic department, our intramurals. Everywhere we go, we all have the same mission statement because every one of our graduates is going to leave here in, and go into the crucible of ground combat. And that keeps us really focused in a laser way of, of what we're going to do. And I think one of the ways that we do it in the history department is through stories and the, the talking about the way people did it in the past. And we are so lucky that we have West Point graduates in all the wars that we would study about American history. And, and so I certainly talk about Grant in the Civil War and what he had. And, and frankly, he didn't like his experience at West Point. But he still ended up getting the, both the intellect and the character. And that's what you get from a West Point, a West Pointer. We guarantee character and intellect. And Grant had that. Pershing in World War I, uh, Westmoreland, Schwarzkopf. And I said one story that I love telling is about Benjamin O. Davis, Jr., who graduated in 1936. He was the, the fourth African-American and the first uh, black officer to graduate from here in over 50 years. He was... Uh, shunned while he was here because of the racist time in America. And yet he graduated, uh, went on to lead the Red Hawks, the, the, the Tuskegee Airmen, became the first four-star general uh, in the Air Force, uh, and, and, a, and a, a, an amazing person. But those are the stories that we have of West Point graduates. We also have, uh, that I take them to show leadership into our memorial room. And the memorial room at West Point has the 1,558 names of West Point graduates who died in combat serving their nation. It's, uh, it's an awe-inspiring place to be. And there have been a thou- uh, sorry, 100 names that have died since 9-11. And, uh, and, and th- to look at those names, and, and I taught many of them, is uh, to have a sobering reminder of the mission that we have and what makes us different at West Point than every other school in the country. You know, Yale in World War One had 9,000 people that served in Yale in World War One, and they had 10 times the number of, of killed in action that we did at West Point in World War One. And yet, since the wars of 9-11 in Iraq and Afghanistan, we've had 100 die, and Yale's had no one die in uniform. So that's what makes us special, is the mission that we're going to do to, to put every one of the thousand graduates to be a, to become a, a second lieutenant in the United States Army. It's why we're special, and boy, do we take it seriously. We take it seriously by creating the best uh, leadership, uh, the, the best leadership that we can possibly do uh, in, in every way, shape, and form. I think the athletic is a big part of that. Intramurals are a big part of that. Competition is a big part of that. Ethics training, philosophy, math, you name it, everything we do here at West Point is to create uh, leaders of character for the nation. And Colonel Scully, one last question as we round out this hour. 
And uh, it gets to the point that Colonel Sedgley was just making about these young men who come here. These are Americans. These are ordinary Americans coming to West Point. And it's not the privileged. I mean, in the end, you've got to get in. There's a long line to get in. And a lot of these young men could be going to Yale and Harvard and Princeton. These are our best and our brightest. And they are basically signing up to essentially be prepared to go to war. Who are these young men and women? And talk about how inexhaustible that supply seems to be in this great country and how we're very different than a lot of other countries where the nobility and the noble and the high classes generally are the officers. But in America, it's a meritocracy. And West Point is, if anything, one of the great meritocracies left in this country. I would absolutely agree, Lee. Um, so, yes, the the men and women who are volunteering at, at the young ages of 18 and 19 years old to come here to West Point knowing that after um, they do their duty to the American people who are giving them this great education um, and this great training, that they're going to go out and serve the American people in in the most dangerous job in the world, but also the most rewarding because they get to serve with all of the other American sons and daughters who have enlisted in the Army um, or who, who have become commissioned into the Army through ROTC, uh, the the ROTC programs across the nation or the officer candidate school for those non-commissioned officers who, who are going to be commissioned as officers. So they're amazing people. They're, they're young. They are very energetic. They are incredibly intelligent. Um, they, well, they're certainly smarter than I am, um, so it's always difficult to keep up with them. Um, and they, they, all they want to do is succeed at what they're doing now so that they can succeed later on and take care of those men and women who they're going to be leading in combat in the future. Um, and we do, we do seem to have, I mean, it's very competitive to get into West Point. Um, I believe looking at the latest numbers, uh, 9% of those who applied were accepted. Um, we keep the, the classes fairly small uh, at about 1,250, um, and that's so that we can meet the needs of the Army, but also so we can keep our classrooms small and keep that education um, personal and, and impactful. And keep that standard high. Gentlemen, thank you both. Colonel Ty Sedgley, Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully, both of West Point, celebrating for the hour with us here on Our American Stories, the birth of West Point in 1802. Thanks so much, gentlemen. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Lee. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. On this day in history in 1802, West Point was born.
American stories, and our crew is always looking for, well, different kinds of stories that interest us and make us laugh, and hopefully will make you laugh or think or even cry. And this one stumbled on our desk, and it's called Anger Rooms, A Smashing New Way to Relieve Stress. This was in the New York Times, and we love getting our stories from small papers in the middle of the country and some of our great papers in some of our biggest cities. And Donna Alexander, well, she knows a lot about anger rooms, and she joins us right now. Donna, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Look, before we get into this new way to relieve stress, and I can't wait to hear it because I think we've all got it, and I think we've all got what we think are solutions to this. Let's talk about you first. Uh, Talk a little bit about, we love talking to people about their parents, their family, where they were born, and how that shaped them. So share with us a little bit about those things. Okay. um, Well, I was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, uh, but I was raised in Chicago, Illinois, and I come from a military background. So um, both my mother and my father uh, were Army, uh, they're Army veterans. And I spent all of my summers in uh, New York, um, in the Bronx. So, um, I kind of got a, <laughs> a, a taste of a lot of different cities and things, especially coming from a military, uh, family. And, um, when I attended school, I actually majored in commercial and residential architecture, um, and graphic design and multimedia. And then later on in life, I had two kids. So I'm a mom of a daughter and a son, uh, that are 10 and 12 years old. That's fantastic. And tell me about the, you know, we love talking to folks who had military experience or families uh, who had a lot of military experience. I'm a a son of an Air Force uh, officer, and I was conceived in Lackland Air Force Base and was born in Samson Air Force Base. I mean, I figured out the chronology, and I bounced Mm -hmm. around, and and it sounds like you bounced around. What, how did that help shape and form your character? I, I love asking this question to people who bounced around a lot uh, under the military umbrella. Um, I know that it, it gave me a lot of experience and just the different um, cultures and backgrounds of, of different people because, you know, from bouncing from one area to another, that means I'm going to different schools all the time, so I'm meeting people from all different walks of life. So, I mean, I think it just built my character and just being more understanding to people who are uh, different and have uh, different backgrounds and and uh, lifestyles. So I think it helped in that fact. And then it also gave me a, a sneak peek at um, at traveling. Um, it lets me it let me know that I like traveling. <laughs> so um, it it actually I guess played a, a nice little part in in my life. Well, and you grew up, you you spent a lot of time, you said, in the summers in the Bronx. And uh, as a kid from northern New Jersey, one of the great pleasures of my life, a dear friend of mine said, let's go take a bike ride across the George Washington Bridge and let's go to this place called Orchard Beach. And there was a guy named Tito Puente playing at the beach on a Sunday night. And I went there and I was shocked to find like 100,000 people that went to this beach, Orchard Beach, every Sunday to catch some of the great Latin artists of the world play there for free. Uh, wow. did, you, did you ever have the opportunity to go to Orchard Beach? No, I haven't. I actually haven't been able to go there. Um, usually when I got to New York and I played, I 
stayed right in the Bronx and then went to, you know, I just went to Manhattan, the different boroughs, and then my grandmother uh, would take me traveling with her. So then I would go to Philadelphia and, you know, South and North Carolina and things like that. So um, I didn't get to enjoy, like, too much outside of uh, Manhattan, Queens, and uh, and Brooklyn uh, when I was in New York. Well, if you ever get a chance, it still happens, and it's uh, mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican families, second, third, fourth generation, who just won't move. And I think part of the reason they won't move are Sundays at Orchard Beach, and it's a delight. Everybody grills, cooks out, and everybody dances. Everybody. It's required. <laughs> And it's a, it's just a beautiful thing. Let's talk a little bit about this this enterprise. Um, you know, I, I read this piece in the New York Times. How did how did it come to you that there needed to be such a thing as an anger room? Um, when I was sixteen and at home in Chicago, um, at the time I want to say that was around ninety eight, and we had a real bad problem with uh, overpopulation of our jail system, and I just figured that. I could help out in some way, and I think part of that is because I had a lot of people who I knew, friends and family members, uh, that went to jail for, like, punching holes in walls or damaging other people's property. And I was like, well, what if they had a place where people can do that and not get in trouble for it and not go to jail for it? So um, that's kind of where the idea sparked, and then I thought that it was so good that someone else would come out with it. So I kind of left it alone for a few years and finished school. And I had moved to Dallas in 2002. And when I moved there, the idea resurfaced again. So I did some searching and no one had came out with it. So I still left it alone. (laughs) And then in 2008, that was like the last time this idea just kept popping up. And I was like, okay, I just need to go ahead and do it. So I started it out of the garage of my home in 2008. And I would invite my friends and coworkers to come break stuff in my garage for five bucks. And they started telling other people. And I started getting strangers at my house asking if that was the place to break stuff. So uh, when that happened, I knew that I had something. And that's basically how the anger room was born. Well, I love it. And when we come back, we're going to dig into the stuff people break, how you built this business and where it is now. It sounds like you're spreading out. Las Vegas and Los Angeles are on the horizon And we're talking to Donna Alexander and her story from the New York Times, Anger Rooms, a smashing new way to relieve stress where people pay Donna a few bucks and they just whack and destroy stuff. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can go to Our American Network to catch all that we do. More with Donna Alexander after these messages. Yeah. American stories, and we continue our conversation with Donna Alexander. 
And an article in the New York Times recently, Anger Rooms, a smashing new way to relieve stress was the headline. And my goodness, you've got to pick that up and read it. And we just started laughing. But there was something deep that was being captured here. So, Donna, you, you have your garage, and people are coming in. And what are they busting up in that garage? Um, they were breaking things like TVs and computers, um, laptops, a lot of electronics and, uh, like stuff, animals and things like that, whatever I can find, um, around my neighborhood that we had, that we would have out for our bulk trash pickup days. And, and so this continues to happen and you're thinking, I have a business idea here. What volume of business triggered you to think? I need to get a separate location away from my garage. I think I've got the demand. I think I got myself a business. Um, I want to say is that I know is the day that the stranger came to my door and asked, was this the place to break stuff? Um, because before then, I didn't have a problem when it was just like a lot of my friends and coworkers. And they would come all the time. So it kind of turned into like almost a traditional thing at my home. But when the strangers started popping up, I'm like, okay, you guys are telling other people, but other people are interested. So um, that's kind of when I knew that, hey, I may have something here just because I have strangers coming up. And I, it turned out that I did. So. And do people bring their own stuff to break, Donna, for the most part? Um, sometimes they do. We don't require it because we always have stuff in stock, but they're more than welcome to bring their own stuff whenever they want to. And so how do, how do we how do we get from the garage to the business? I mean, what was your business plan? Did you go to a bank to get the money? What was your first location? Talk about this first actual real toe into the real world of business, taking it away from a home business and actually taking that risk, Donna, with your time and your capital. Yeah. Um, going from a garage to my first location, um, I kind of just, like, jumped in there and went for it. So I didn't have any uh, traditional uh, bank financing or anything like that. What I did is I started uh, from the background work. So I wanted to start on trademarks and patents and intellectual property. And then I worked on my business plan and came up with my own pricing because I wanted something that was reasonable and affordable for everybody in every income level. So um, it, I wanted just to make it fair. And then once I incorporated all of that into my business plan, I started to look for uh, potential locations. And I already had an idea of where I wanted to be at, so I started there. And it turned out that it was, like, too expensive at the time. So I would just search around to find somebody to tell me yes because I got a 1,000-plus no's and lack of doors closed and people laughing and thought that it was for crazy people. So um, I finally got a guy three years later um, that was willing to sublease to me. So my first space was a little bit over um, 780 square feet. And he just let us go, uh, go for it. And when we did, uh, before I even opened the doors, I had accumulated a waiting list. So I had a four month long waiting list. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'm a landlord. I own some commercial property. And for anybody who's a landlord out there, you're always thinking, hmm, who do I want in my space? And I, I guess you had to be thinking, or at least the people who you were talking to had to be thinking, she breaks stuff uh, next. I mean, you know, what if a brick goes through like the... Exactly. 
Exactly. So finally, you get a landlord to believe in you. You've got a waiting list. What about insurance? What are, are you able to insure this business? Oh, yes. That was the very next thing that um, that came up. And it was funny because I thought I got I had covered every aspect of my business, but I didn't think about the insurance until I got my first landlord. And he was like, hey, you think you're going to need some insurance? And I was like, you know what? Yes, I do. So I, I searched. Uh, it only took me a few months to obtain insurance, but um, I was able to get us insured, fully insured, and even the insurance company, uh, when I had to explain to them what we do and how we do it, um, they were they were really skeptical about it because it was something new and not, uh, something they never insured before. So um, it just took a little bit of convincing and explaining to them how we run the business, and then they were able to uh, cover us. So, yeah, we definitely have. So, so your sales skills, Donna, went beyond selling to customers. I mean, this is, by the way, what we learn over and over again when people start businesses. The sale never stops. The selling never stops. You had to convince an insurance company to cover you. And by the way, it turns out, Donna, we learned there had never been a category for your business before. And as you know, insurance companies have to predict models of risk based on well, what's happened in that industry before? You are mm-hmm. actually a pioneer here, Donna. You are the first. The first. Good for you. Yeah. So now let's talk about your expansion plans. You, you, you succeed in this first location. And where is the actual location of that first store? Um, it's in a, it's called Richardson, Texas. It's still in Dallas, but I guess it's considered um, a suburb of Dallas. Yep. So uh, the very first location is in Richardson, Texas, uh, directly across the street from Texas Instruments. This is one of our biggest um, companies that we have here in Dallas. So we were right across the street from them. And who are your who are your clients? Talk about who are the folks who come in. More men than women, old, young, corporate, uh, hipsters. Uh, are the hipsters <laughs> have anger issues? Well, you know what? We get people from all walks of life. It is so. I think because everybody can relate to it, we it's hard for us to target down a specific demographic because we get all ages that come in, all professions, incomes, and things like that. Um, but I do see the majority of our customers that do come all deal with the same issues, which is um, uh, family issues and work-related issues and relationship issues. Those are like the top three and we can get people as young as 13 coming in with their parents, and we've had people as old as 75 uh, come in and break stuff. So um, we just we just attract a lot of different people. And do you see actual therapeutic outcomes from this, Donna? I mean, do, do people come in more stressed and leave happier? Yes. Um, it's been eight years now, I believe, so... Um, from all of that uh, experience and watching people come in, come out, things like that, uh, it does show uh, a lot of therapeutic value. And I get people all the time uh, that participate, and they'll send me an email or give me a call and let me know how it affected their lives. It it even helps out health-wise because we've had people that participated and lost tremendous amounts of tremendous amount of weight. Uh, just for participating in the anger room. So I think it has a lot of uh, different uh, beneficial potential there. Well, Donna, tell us one of your favorite stories, if you can, from uh, (laughs) your time uh, running in the anger room. 
Um, I would have to say uh, one of my favorite uh, sessions was we had a guy that asked for an office space. And we thought it was going to be just a typical person coming in to break stuff. Well, when he came in, he actually acted out a scene. And I'm guessing that it was probably from his workplace. And he sat down and he picked up the telephone and he pretended like he was talking to somebody. And he got mad because um, the person didn't sell enough shares or something like that. And then as soon as he finished acting out the scene, he, like, totally destroyed the room, like, to bits and pieces. It was awesome. <laughs> That's my most memorable one. <laughs> That's great. And tell me what your plans are, Donna. You're, you're heading off to two new cities. And I assume you have to figure out which cities have a, a, an index of anger. I'm thinking that, you know, some parts of America might not have as much anger as others. But what's your goal? What, what, in your dream, in your, in your vision, in your blueprint for success? What does that look like, Donna? Um, my goal, I would love for the Anger Room just to be a household name. Um, I would like to see one in every country and every state because I believe everyone needs an outlet. Um, and sometimes uh, we need a physical outlet, something that is normally frowned upon in public, but you can actually go somewhere and do it and not worry about getting judged or uh, getting in trouble for it. So I would love to see it um, all over the place and be able to help as many people as I can as they deal with uh, stressful times and, you know, things that make people angry, uh, angry all the time. They just need a place to, to let their hair down, and that's what I want. Well, when I'm in Dallas, Donna, I'm going to come to Richardson, and I want to bust some stuff, and I want to film it. Angerroom.com. Angerroom.com is where you can go to learn more. And... We want to talk to you more, Donna, and follow this dream of yours. So let's catch up in about six months, see how many more stories we've got. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We've been speaking with Donna Alexander. The article of the New York Times, Anger Room is a smashing new way to relieve stress. is our American stories and when you hear that music it means it's our final thought segment a segment we carve out for a tough subject but a part of all of our lives and that's death it's a eulogy it's a written tribute anything in the end about someone close to either the country or to family members anything that stirs the soul in the end these stories are great biographies in a way but written by the people who were closest to them. Some of our final thoughts have been about famous people, Arnold Palmer's, Billy Graham's, and now we're bringing you another by a, a kind of famous person if you follow politics, Senator Bill Armstrong, Colorado senator, who became later in life the president of Colorado Christian University. Here's our final thoughts. You know, it's often been said that you can't tell the measure of a tree until it's cut down 
and you have to count the rings. And in the same way, you can't tell the measure of a person until they die, and like a cut tree, you count the rings. And this morning, we've been counting the rings of William L. Armstrong. There was an old joke in the Senate when Bill was there that Bill really didn't need a staff. He just had one so that the other senators wouldn't feel bad. Colorado Senator Bill Armstrong became President Bill Armstrong of Colorado Christian University. As his friend Terry Considine remembers, in 2006, Bill called with the news that he had accepted the call to become CCU president. I offered to help to Bill help in any way I can, but I just can't serve on the board. I'm just too busy right now. Bill said, okay, Terry, I understand that. Would it be okay if I prayed for you to change your mind? Please don't. Please don't, Bill. When I reported to Betsy... She wisely advised, call Bill back. You know he'll win in the end. You can't say no to him. And I know Betsy's always right. And I know there are an awful lot of us here today who just could not say no to Bill Armstrong. And CCU is a remarkable institution. But for me, it was the opportunity to watch Bill in action. And it was a tutorial in organizational leadership that uh, was worth far more than the most advanced degree from the finest business school. After each meeting, I would come back to my own work with a long list of what I could do better. Dad traveled every single week. But the wonderful thing was, when he came home, he was home. He was really present with us, taught me to do cartwheels, and taught me to ride the bike, and went jogging with me. and just was a regular, normal dad. I'm crazy about him. I ran for Congress a few years back, and he gave me some great advice about campaigning. He said in that booming radio voice, people imitate my dad. It's kind of funny how, how we all do this. But he said in that booming radio voice, he goes, you know, Will, if you give 100 speeches, 50 will be better than the other 50. I thought words to live by. I mean, I get it. That made sense to me. Bill Armstrong. A life well lived. Here's Bill Armstrong's daughter, Annie Nordby. Dad was born in eastern Nebraska, Fremont. Had a radio show in Beatrice, Nebraska as a young man, I think about 11 years old. Characterized himself as a college drop-in. Um, he dropped in when he was in Minneapolis to college, and he dropped into Tulane when he was in New Orleans, and he dropped into DU when he was here in Denver. Here's his son, Will Armstrong. I came home from college and shared with him an interesting class I was taking, quantitative methods. And he generally seemed interested in it, which at the time, you know, I could not understand why would he be interested in that. 
But about three months later, I came home from from college and saw that he had purchased my textbook and he'd begun teaching himself quant. Wow. He was an amazing guy. Was that businessman very early in his early 20s bought a radio station KOSI and I think that's when he was first approached uh, to to run for office somebody came up to him and said hey Bill we don't have a candidate and he said okay <laughs> and that's kind of how it all started Armstrong became the youngest member of Colorado State House of Representatives at 25 years old and only a few years later became the youngest majority leader of the state senate ever and then became one of the youngest members of the United States House of Representatives but it all wasn't enough for him here's the president of the reformed theological seminary Dr. Don Sweeting he said remember what happened to me he started life in search for money position and power it was centered on that and on himself and He had all he dreamed of by age 30, and he didn't feel successful. It wasn't enough. He was crumbling on the inside, and that's when that Alabama dentist showed up in his office. Not a clergyman, not a constituent. Bill was put off by this guy. He was embarrassed by his direct approach. The man said, Bill, where do you stand with Jesus Christ? Kind of awkward And for some reason, he thought, seeing the light in his office of a vote on the floor, I could get out of this really fast. But he didn't. As many American legends have done, Bill Armstrong embraced the uncomfortable as the only way to grow. The dentist stayed with him and would lead to the most profound of changes. Here's the prominent former political reporter, Lynn Bartles. As Congress was fighting the debt ceiling in 2013, my good friend Dick Wadhams, who's Colorado's political historian, passed on a New York Times story he knew I would enjoy. It was a 1983 feature on U.S. Senator Bill Armstrong and his brand of conservatism. And the newspaper wrote about Armstrong. In one sense, the senator is a missionary, preaching the gospel of fiscal rectitude to the heathens on Capitol Hill. But in another sense, he is a pragmatist who knows how to count votes and when to accept a deal. The Colorado Senator told the Times, I'm relatively inflexible on principles, but I'm flexible on the details. Have I changed my inner self? And here's what Armstrong told the New York Times. The answer is yes. Sometimes I'm very comfortable now with people whose political views are very different from my own. And that was hard for me 10 years ago. Until you've had some of the rough edges knocked off, it's awfully easy to be brash and to feel like you've got all the answers. But as you gain more experience, you realize nobody has all the answers, and that fosters a degree of intellectual humility. A newfound humility that came from his newfound faith. A longtime reporter who covered him once said, after Bill Armstrong got very religious, he also got very tolerant before it was my way or the highway. But after that, he said, you know, other people have views, let's listen to them. I thought that was interesting. Some people, when they get religion, you know, get a little more rigid, but he got a little more understanding. So understanding that he picked up every type of phone call. 
the guy never not returned a phone call, even <laughs> if he knew it was going to be a bad story. our American stories and we've been talking about the life of Bill Armstrong, Colorado Senator, President of Colorado Christian University who recently passed at the age of 79 our final thought segments are sometimes about famous people sometimes about locally prominent people, sometimes just ordinary folks and in the end we're all ordinary folks, some with more title and more stature and more wealth But in the end, we're all people. And we love talking about the life of a person through a eulogy, a written tribute, or almost anything that stirs the soul. And this is one of those occasions where we used a combination of just about everything. We did some phone interviews. We pulled some sound from eulogies. Went onto the web and found other testimonials. But like the original speaker had said about that tree cut down and they were looking at the rings oh my goodness as we continue with this story you'll hear more and more about how a renowned and renewed faith stirred bill armstrong to more humility and to more tolerance and for me and i've met the man twice and spent a couple of hours on both occasions uh what was remarkable to me was how engaged he was in the person standing in right in front right in front of him. It was really a, a beautiful thing. Let us continue now with the story of Bill Armstrong. Senator Armstrong fought for and won the indexing of tax rates to inflation for the first time ever, preventing high inflation from unfairly pushing taxpayers into higher tax brackets. When they see me coming down the street, people are gonna say, Here comes that guy that wants to cut my taxes. Disabled persons uh, all over the country are being thrown off the Social Security rolls because of a quirk in the law. There's a lady by the name of May Reeser. She contacted my office and we developed a bill and within four months we got the bill through the House, through the Senate, signed by the President. The most important thing was people to have benefits so they would not lose what they had worked for all those years. And this is what Bill Armstrong helped us do. Here's Colorado Senator Cory Gardner. Senator Bill Armstrong went to meet with the Refuseniks, uh, as they came to be known, Jewish people living in the Soviet Union who were being persecuted for their views and wanted to leave the Soviet Union for a better life. 
He went there without contacting his staff, without letting them know how he was, where he was, because he was afraid that the KGB would find out the work that he was doing, the harm that it could cause to the people he was meeting with, and perhaps even to the staff back home. But he knew he had to bring that message of what was happening in the persecution in the Soviet Union. He had to bring that back to his colleagues in the Senate to make sure they understood and could put an end to the tragedy that was happening in the Soviet Union. Having never graduated from college, it was the last thing on Bill's mind when he was approached to become the president of Colorado Christian University. Bill served as the president of CCU from 2006 to 2016. He called his work at the university the most significant, energizing, and rewarding work I have ever undertaken. During his tenure, the school prospered with enrollments more than doubling, and the American Council of Trustees and Alumni ranking CCU at the top 2% of colleges nationally for its core curriculum four years in a row. Here's Colorado Christian CFO, Dan Coors. He worked every Saturday. Every Saturday. I mean, this was just another day. And I asked him one time, I said, why is it you work every Saturday? And he looked right at me with a smile and he said, haven't you read in Exodus, six days thou shalt work? (laughs) As great as my pop is, uh, the real secret to the Armstrong family is my mom. And I don't think that my dad would have gotten half as far, uh, as great as he is, without, without my mom. Here's former Colorado Senator Hank Brown. I think Bill's strength uh, ultimately is not just that the great success he's had, whether it's in business or uh, in, at Colorado Christian University or in, in politics in the Senate or state legislature. I think his real success has come in the example he set for others. An example that impacted others. An example that others could look up to and strive for. Bill Armstrong achieved many things on this earth, but more importantly, he influenced many people on this earth. Takes the responsibility of being the patriarch so seriously. Man, he looks out for those kids. He guides them. He's always available. He wants to give them advice. He's, he's really a tremendous grandpa. What, what a role model for them, just as he's always been for me and Will. We found that we both love to read. And that began a relationship that was uh, kind of a challenge at times because I would get five or ten books a year from Bill for almost 40 years. Keeping up with that was, was not always easy. I've never seen such a lovely marriage in my life. He calls her kiddo. Um, every single morning, a hug and a kiss, and how are you? And we saw how they were a team and how they connected together, and they set an example for Betsy and Mia, a, a relationship to which we aspire. This guy was out of Congress forever, and his former staff was still meeting and gathering, and that is an influence that's really felt through the years. Here's one of those former Armstrong staff members, Greg Walcher. Last month in Denver, I attended a remarkable event, a simple reunion of people who once worked for U.S. Senator William L. Armstrong. There were dozens of people there sharing fond memories and funny stories of what most still consider the best years of their lives. 
I spent 10 unforgettable years on his Washington, D.C. staff. Like everyone else there, I have since been associated with numerous other organizations and foundations that do wonderful work. But none of them have regular reunions, nor have the people in those other organizations stayed in close touch or been together frequently. But former Armstrong staffers always have. Bill Armstrong wasn't able to attend this last reunion because of his health. He was in his fifth year of battling cancer. He had every reason to sit back and take it easy. But he believed he had a pretty spectacular retirement package in heaven. And he wanted to serve the Lord and others till the end. He wanted to die at his desk, as he told many of us, to remain at his post. And he had health issues that you would never know about, but he wouldn't quit. I remember going up to him and saying, Bill, how are you? And he'd say, I'm doing great. It's just my body's not cooperating. He liked the story because he never wanted to retire. My dad always wanted to be productive for God's kingdom. And as it turned out, I took my dad to the CCU office just 12 days before his death. He would have liked the way that that turned out. Three weeks ago, Bill and I sat together talking about his imminent death. He was secure in his faith and impatient that he hadn't finished all that he wanted to do. I offered to help, thinking there might be some small task, some errand to be run. Instead, he showed me his list, 146 items. He was working until the very end. Then he said, the best time of his life has been that last month. Visits from all the grandkids, his sister, nieces, nephews, and friends. The touch of mom's hand on his face. Me laughing like a lunatic in the house. Will, Christy, and the kids just dropping by for no reason. Imagine that. The man who taught himself algebra. Why? But he did. Who advised presidents and who was a successful businessman. He knew the truth of what was important in this life and he never looked back. And last of all, here's Bill Armstrong's colleague, the Vice President of Public Policy at Colorado Christian, John Andrews. It's fitting that his last night on earth was Independence Day. For he lived our country's founding principles as few others have. And what a story. And what a thing to say to family members that the best time of your life would be the last month with terminal cancer. My goodness. And again, anyone who'd ever met him, you just met an engaged guy in the world. And when you're running a college, you've got to be. You've got to be with those kids. And again, you see this with Dr. Larry Arn at Hillsdale College. You will see the same thing. The mission is those kids, and they're his kids. And so often, people who believe in free enterprise and faith don't come off as human. And that's, well, that's our fault. Uh, But Bill taught us all how to do that, how to walk that walk. And as someone had said toward the end, he, he was secure in his faith, but impatient that he hadn't done all that he could do. And but for that all of us of faith walked and talked like Bill Armstrong. Decent, tolerant, a beautiful man, a beautiful life. 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our final thoughts. Colorado Senator Bill Armstrong. And most importantly, the work he did with boys and girls at the Colorado Christian University. Final thoughts.